Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof the Podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating. As always, we appreciate it. And if you know someone who's into science or might like this show because they're sort of a curious person, uh, please do let them know about it. We really appreciate it. Coming up on this week's episode, we're going to be speaking to a fella who is growing mini retinas in the lab uh, to try and understand how our vision develops in the human eye. Really interesting uh, piece and uh, really uh, fascinating science. So looking forward to that. First, though, it's time to look back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science. This week, we're joined by Dr. Susan Kelleher. She brings the sassy brass to DCU School of Chemical Sciences. And Dr. Fergus McCall of the Lean Mean iCrag Machine. You're both very welcome. Were, were my, they prepared or were they just ad-libbed? Because I quite no, like my, them. My, my producer said I need to make it more interesting. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she definitely. didn't. She didn't. I'm just in a strange mood. Um, OK, listen, thank you very much for joining. You're very welcome. Um, Susan, our first story has to do with a blood test for Alzheimer's. I kind of feel like we're doing this every week, like a, that we have a new test to predict Alzheimer's. Uh, what is this one? Yeah, I think I think the story there is the fact that we still don't have it on the market. So why yeah. not? And what's happening in the research that's supporting the, the fact that we need to put this on the market? So we know that Alzheimer's affects more than in the States alone is six million people of all ages, believe it or not. And um, it's the most common form of dementia. So 60 to 70 percent of people with dementia have Alzheimer's. But the way that they're currently um they currently do the diagnosis is either by uh, brain scans, which are expensive, as you know, and they're not always always available locally, um, yeah. or a lumbar puncture, which, look, you know, no one wants to, especially in a vulnerable position um, situation when you're not feeling well, to have that done. So it's where they take the spinal fluid out of your spinal cord and they analyze that. So mm. these are not ideal scenarios. So a blood test would be incredible for something like dementia. But with all blood tests, the way that they work is... Um, there has to be a what's called a biomarker, which is that molecule in the blood that is only in the blood if you have that disease. So if you're pregnant, it's a certain type of hormone, um, et cetera. And obviously for different kinds of um, blood tests, there's different types of biomarkers. Yeah. Um, so recent work, basically, people have been doing this um, recently showed that there is um, a specific type of biomarker it's called a phosphorylated tau it's a type of protein that is specifically in your blood at high levels if you have alzheimer's and um, but work published this week from um, the journal of american medical association neurology and um, led by a swedish group basically showed that they were able to use an off-the-shelf what's called an immu- immunoassay kit to be able to detect this these proteins at good enough levels that basically is at the same level of accuracy as the spinal cord um, fluid, you know, basically using the blood. This is really important for two reasons. First of all, you don't necessarily have, you don't have to have the, the fluid, you know, you don't have to have that sample, which is massive. And um, so you can go with obviously the blood. But the second really important thing is that this is a commercially available immunoassay kit. These kits are kind of like a magnet that pulls out the thing that you're looking for, that biomarker. So different types of magnets and different types of bio kits and uh, these immunoassay kits pull out different types of biomarkers and they take a lot of development they're expensive they're hard to get you know, access to they're not it's commercially available to scientists in the lab but not commercially available to the to people yet and um, you know you're, you couldn't do it necessarily yourself at home but what's amazing is the fact that they can use the off-the-shelf commercial um, immunoassay kit to be able to extract this phosphor this p-tau and um, protein at good enough accuracy they did this with um 
786 patients across three cohorts around the world. So it's quite a you know widespread, good, um, a kind of a, a well-distributed population, some of whom had Alzheimer's, some of whom didn't. And they were able to detect with 80% accuracy from the blood samples, that, which is pretty much the same as what you get when you're looking at the, the spinal cord fluid assays as well. So I really like it. I liked the, the paper and I liked the fact that the fact that they said, let's go find the commercially available amino acid kit and see if it can do as good a job as, you know, the kind of more specialized kits and, and assays you might develop in the lab yourself. So it's nice. Um, 80% doesn't sound very accurate to me. Well, it's the same as um, if you were doing the, it's it's up there at the same rate as the spinal fluid. It What might mean is that you might just have to redo the assays a few times. It's not that you just, you know, that a 20% you know, unsuccessful hit rate isn't, uh, doesn't sound great, but it would be, you know, you might retest or reanalyze or you send things for repeat. Um, you know, you might do things in triplicate and do things a few more times um, when you're looking even at the fluid, uh, the, the fluid from the spinal cord. But the fact that you can extract, I guess the point is that if you're looking at the way your magnet works, the magnet is in like the way that the assay works, it can extract the same amount of um, the P-tau from blood as it can from the spinal fluid. That's the kind of main thing is that it's working as well in both fluids. Okay, so it's actually, it's detecting the specific, it's not just that it's as accurate, it's actually getting the same thing out of the sample. That's that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, okay, right. fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, it would really revolutionize this, or, you know, at least make, I think, a good argument to, to a company to, now you should make this available. <laughs> you know, this could be a, you know, a trustworthy process that you should go make available in a kind of a commercial sense. So it's nice. Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly um, it would make, the argument for earlier testing and more regular testing of people if you know i'm gonna say 55 plus because i'm nearly <laughs> myself 50 i'm gonna say older than me uh but um uh you know like that would be a good thing to to actually make more regular if it's just a, a blood test and, mm. and a commercial thing that the demand for those surely will, will increase given how many people suffer from alzheimer's or or uh, it might be uh, very interesting our second story um fergus has to do with owls i love this one yeah, so I think you'll um, you really like this one, Jonathan, because your your father worked as a pilot. Is that right? Yes, yeah, he did. So, so there there's there's actually a lot of parallels between this study um, and aircrafts, essentially. So, this was a study that was done at a Chiba University um, in Japan, and it's it was it's it's on the fascinating question of how owls can f- can fly so silently, because as we know, they're you know they're an apex predator, um, and how they frequently attack prey is they essentially swoop in in the dark because they have um excellent sight um, they also have excellent hearing but they're able to essentially pounce um and they're able to appear out of the darkness completely silently so the question is how were they able to do that and there were some suggestions there that at the at the ends of the owl wings they have these things called trailing edge fringes they're the best way that you can kind of um imagine them was that like if you look at say like your own hair fringe right and if you can imagine if you were to zoom in on that right and you were to place those tiny little hairs themselves on the on the very very end of a wing okay so it's these these little sort of micro hairs um at the end of the wing but they needed to test it right they built two 3d owl wings in the lab one of the owl wings had these trailing edge fridges on it and the other one did it and then they essentially carried out these uh computational fluid dynamic experiments essentially what they're doing there is blowing air over the tips of the wings. And what they found was that the wings that had these tiny, tiny trailing edge fringes, they were a lot quieter, um, but also they were a lot more stable, okay? 
And so what they reckon is happening is that when you have these trailing edge fringes is that disturbs the generation of vortices. Okay. So vortices in air or in fluids. So if you, if you imagine like a whirlpool, right. And you see the water that's kind of spinning down, right. That spinning action creates noise and it's the same in air. If you have air that's, you know, that's spinning around really fast, that generates noise. And these tiny little trailing edge fringes, it stops the, um, it stops the creation of those vortices but also if they do form, it also helps to kind of break them up as well, hmm. right? So that's what reduces the noise. But crucially, this ability to break up these tiny vortices also gives the owl wings a lot more aerodynamic stability, allowing them to come in from much higher angles of attack, so much steeper. Um, so if you imagine, say, like if you go back to, to wars and stuff like that, you have those, you know, the Stuka dive bombers and they were coming in at a really, really high angle, really, really loud. So what's happening here is that these fringes are breaking up the noise and they're giving extra stability to the owl hmm. to allow them to predate in the darkness and in silence. I imagine this is something that um, airline um, engineers might be interested in and presumably the military as well. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And the big use here, um, and it was mentioned, I think, in some of the commentary around the study, is on drones. Because as we all know, drones are loud. If you're out for a walk in the woods or by a lake, you know, they can really, really be ear piercing. But this could be a way uh, to reduce the amount of noise that they generate. Very interesting. The application I thought of was uh, new parents trying to sneak into a toddler, to the room where a baby lay. (laughs) Yeah, very good. Or sneaking upstairs when you're supposed to be uh, you're supposed to be in bed already uh, sneaking upstairs and not getting hurt. Um, our third story uh, has to do with aging. Uh, the world is obsessed with aging uh, at the moment. It seems. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always been, hasn't it? Maybe I don't know. But um, these are around T cells. So. Um, T cells are one of the most important white blood cells that we have in the immune system. And they're found in bone marrow and they basically are sent around your blood, defending your body on your behalf against different things that may be wanting to damage it. Um, so, for example, if you're under the weather, T cells ha- have a very large role to play in killing viral cells um, and, and they stop viral infection. But um, even more impressively, actually, one of the things they can do is they can kill cancerous cells in your body as well. So the T cells can recognize a cancerous cell and and you know, stop it in its tracks, which is very important because, you know, this this fast, um, uncontrollable reproduction, uh, reproduction of the cells of cancer is is the issues around having cancer cells in your body in the first place. But um, work published this week in Nature Aging showed that T cells can also be programmed to kill what are called sentient cells. Um, and Celsius, sentient cells are cells that just don't die and they kind of gather like, you know, litter in your body, which when you're young, it doesn't really matter. But as you get older, they can cause all all sorts of inflammation and obesity, diabetes, there's things that they're associated with. So there's um, a lot of research into trying to get rid of these sensing cells. And um, there are drugs that you can take that will do this so they can kind of clear your body, but they don't last for very long. And, you know, you, you're only taking them when there's maybe when you have some symptoms of something already, which sometimes can be too late, as we know. So this idea and this work came from um, the basically kind of mimicking immunotherapies for cancer where they, they take what are called shimaic antigen receptor T-cells. So their CAR-T-cells uh, CAR are called. 
And they're used in cancer therapies where they are basically you take T cells out of your body and they are kind of manipulated and functionalized to change a little bit um, to be able to go in and attack cancer cells really, really well. So then they're put back into your body in a drip and then they go around your body and they they act in this defensive mechanism. Mm. But the good thing about these kinds of cells is that they're in there all the time. They're not cleared because they're not a drug. So they've basically shown that with mice, if you put these CAR T cells into mice, even before they show any uh, symptoms, they can uh, allow mice to live healthier, happier lives. So the idea is that you get a dose of this early on and that it stops things from developing when you're older. Is there a negative to overdosing on these killer T cells? Like, is it something that we might see in Kellogg's cornflakes um, in the future? Like, you know, adding yeah. vitamins and uh, T cells? So they would not be stable enough to be in your cornflakes and they're also extremely expensive. So, right. okay. Uh, our final story um, has to do with not T cells, but just T, Fergus. Yes. So we've had World War One, we've had World War Two, and now we have World War T. So there has been an international diplomatic incident has arisen this week between the United States and the UK over how to make the perfect cup of tea. And it was triggered when a scientist from the US, Michelle Frankel, and she's a professor of chemistry at Bryn Mawr College, she claimed to have found the perfect recipe for a cup of tea. Now, she didn't make this claim lightly, okay? So she is a chemist. She has just written a book called uh, Steeped, The Chemistry of Tea. And as part of that, she read five, she read over 500 academic papers. She did some experiments of her own around measuring the cooling curves for things like teapots of different materials. She spiked her own tea with extra doses of naturally occurring vitamins um, and minerals to see how that affected its flavor. And she even used heavy water to to make tea to determine if it was uh, actually, in fact, sweeter. And it wow. is. But the big claim that she made in her book was um, that to make the perfect cup of tea, you should add a pinch of salt. Now, the reason that you would do that... <laughs> a lot yeah, of skeptical my, fa- my, face is, <laughs> my face is really scrunched up here. So why, why would one add a pinch of salt? Well, when you add a pinch of salt into tea, the sodium ion in salt, um, it blocks the chemical mes- uh, mechanism that makes the tea taste bitter. Now, where this led to a diplomatic incident was because it was, it was blowing up online and the US Embassy in London came out with a statement, a tongue-in-cheek one, but a statement nonetheless uh, saying that, you know, tea is the, inter- in the, is the international currency of camaraderie and that they would never advise the Brits on how to make tea. But, however, they did say that uh, the US Embassy will continue to boil water the correct way, which is, of course, to microwave it. We all remember that TikToker last year who microwaved her water when she was making her tea and all of the issues that that caused. But it has it, it has really gotten people thinking about what is the perfect cup of tea, all of the, all, all of the aromas. And, uh, um, and a key thing that she mentions in her book is if you, if you are to have a cup of tea, especially if it's a takeaway cup, take the lid off because mm-hmm. all of the aromas that um, when they're exposed to there and you smell them, that is essential to having a really nice cup of tea. There you go. I think uh, that's exactly what I'm going to do now. Um, Dr. Fergus McAuliffe from iCraig and Dr. Susan Keller from DCU School of Chemical Sciences. Thank you very much. Now, Scientists over the many decades have grown lots of odd things in a Petri dish, but some in Maryland and the United States are exploring what lab-grown retinas can tell us about how we can see colour. 
Uh, joining me now to explain more about his research is Robert J. Johnston Jr., or Bob, Associate Professor in the Department of Biology at John Hopkins. Um, welcome to the program, uh, Bob. Uh, let's start off with some basic stuff, because actually vision is absolutely fascinating to me. I, I could talk about it forever. Let's talk a little bit about um, how how w- we see colour and at what sort of level we we can see. Yeah, thanks so much, by the way, for the invite. It's really great to be here. Um so humans, uh, we have three main color detectors in our eyes, these cells that detect blue light, green light, and red light. And so this covers kind of the, the rainbow spectrum that enables us to see the colors that we see every day. Um, what makes us different than most other mammals is that most other mammals only have two color detectors. So usually blue and green. And so uh, you may, if you have any pets or any of the listeners have any pets, you know, your cat or dog, they may say they're colorblind. Uh, they're not truly colorblind. They just can't see red. And so there's aspects, especially discriminating between red and green, that your pet wouldn't be able to do. And, and uh, these uh, s- sort of uh, color detecting cells, these um, cones that we have in our retina, they are um, what give us the ability to detect color. And, and that uh, signal is then sort of... Um, unscrambled and, and made sense of within the brain itself. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point you bring up. Uh, the, the, these photoreceptor cells, these cone cells detect the light. Then there's some actual processing within the eye first. Right. They, they send the, in, the, the in information through other neurons in the eye, and then they kind of output this information through these cells called retinal ganglion cells that are very, very long. They connect the eye deep into the brain, the the the, the visual components of the brain, so that way it can interpret that information. How do we know that? How do we know some local processing happens before uh, that information gets packaged up to the brain? Yeah, so basically it's the difference in the uh, activity of these neurons at each level. So in other words, the, the, um, you, if you think about you know, your television, you have these pixels, or on your computer screen you have these pixels, your eye kind of works in a similar way, and it's taking this information but there's a lot of different information. One part is very simply, what kind of color are you detecting? Another piece of information, for instance, that we're working on currently is what direction are things moving? So in other words, it interprets information as light is moving across and really it's saying, okay, is it getting brighter as it moves across or getting dimmer? And this um, is another factor. There's many parameters that our eye kind of interprets a bit first before sending that information into the brain. Um, so there have been lots of uh, stories in the past um, maybe five years about uh, different attempts to grow different organs from the body. And, and, and obviously these aren't full, fully working organs, but um, mini versions of them They're called organoids. But uh, I, was, I was interested to see that you've been working on this for over 10 years. Tell me a little bit about your, um, your retina organoids and, and how you go about making them. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, I kind of got into the organoid field right at the when retinal organoids were first coming out. Uh, My career before this was working on invertebrates, so like worms and fruit flies. And I had seen this talk by a really fantastic scientist, Yashiki Sasai, who had just came out with the technology to do the first experiments using human retinal organoids. And I thought, that's the system I'm going to I want to use that system to understand how the human eye develops. And so when I got to Hopkins, uh, I, this is when I was just starting my job at Hopkins. Um, I was fortunate to get the right student, Kiara Eldred, a grad student in the lab, was very interested in this project. 
And then really was helped out by a colleague, Don Zach, who helped us get it up and running in our lab because we had no experience. We didn't have any microscopes or um, cell culture equipment or even the stem cells. So we really were starting from scratch. Wow. And um, yeah. And, you know, I think that it was just a a, we were at the right place at the right time a bit. You know, with science, there's a bit of good fortune when things go right. Um, And I would say that, you know, what it has been a very exciting time for organoids. And I'm really excited to think about where it's going to go to the next level. So in other words, there, as you mentioned, there was a lot of new kinds of organoids coming out um, that people you know, have grown intestine or eye or brain. I think what um, I'm hoping we're kind of pushing it to the next level is using those organoids to understand things about humans and human biology. Because um, that to me is the real strength because there's enough great model organisms like mice and fish, et cetera, that we can understand the basics. But really, to understand about human biology, this is what this is going to be a great tool to do. Right. So um, talk to me how you build a, a retina in a, in a Petri dish. How does that work? Yeah. So basically, um, we take the cells, we kind of uh, clump them up. When you say you then- take the cells, you're talking about yeah. M- a- IPSCs, so, so blank slate scrabble pieces, stem cells? Yeah. So we take either IPS or uh, uh, embryonic stem cells. And we kind of take about 3,000 or so. We clump them up. We have a couple different strategies for doing that, but we kind of clump them up. And then we add different signals that will either push different fates, so push towards retina, and then prevent the formation of brain and other kinds of um, tissues. I will say that sometimes it doesn't go well. My postdoc, uh, she's starting a whole new project studying monkey organoids. And she was very excited. She was growing her organoids. But then she was a little disappointed to find that they started beating. Right. So they had gone down the wrong path. She has since, you know, worked hard to figure out ways to then make those into into retina. Um, but this is one caveat in the field is that we want to make sure that we're growing the right thing. And then once you are, then you can use that as a model to study human biology. So this is fascinating that you, these these cells, of course, uh, have uh, uh, you know the full complement of DNA in them, and so they can become any cell in if they're humans, any cell in the human body. So you have to use sort of these molecules and sort of push them one way or another way to make them um, respond in a way that you hope will end up being um, retina cells. Uh, and that I, I, it's really interesting to see that that doesn't always go the, the way you want them to. So my lab, that what they call it, when they don't go the right way, they call them potatoes because they, they kind of like look like this mush of cells that looks like a potato, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so I like that. I like that. So these... Um, uh, these non-potatoes, uh, w- w- <laughs> when, w- when, the, when the cells start to multiply as, as, stel- as cells do, uh, uh, you know, I'm getting the correct signals that they do. Uh, what sort of um, differentiation do you see? Do you see lots of, I mean, obviously, I think it's 100 different types of cell types in the eye. Do you see many different cell types? Does it, does it um, give you the full complement of those? I mean, how do you make something that isn't just uh, a, a flat sheet of, of similar cells? Yeah, this is a great question. So the there's a couple different things going on. One is we you know we think there's over a hundred different types. We don't even know all the types of cells in the human eye yet. And you know uh, part of it is what do we call a different kind of cell? You know it, it's a bit it's a little bit more gray than you think. So that's one challenge. And then at least from what we've seen in others, many others have studied this too and done really fantastic work. Is it really recapitulates? the development. That's why we wanted to use it as a developmental system. In other words, 
a lot of people are using this, and we are too, to develop therapies. So it's like, okay, we're going to use this to grow retinal tissue for hopefully for transplants or other ways to really help people that have vision uh, problems. But what we're we're more of a, I would say, a fundamental science group. We're trying to understand how those cells are made, and then that would ultimately kind of feed back to influence how we can engineer them later on. Okay, so th this is a basic science um, rather than a, a lot of clinical application, um, but but potential there w with learnings that come from it, I guess. Uh, talk to me about um, what you've learned about how um, cones decide which color they are. This is to, to do with uh, something that comes from vitamin A, retinoic acid. Yeah, yeah. So just to, to remind you, the there's three main types of these cones, blue, red, and green. And we think it's a two-step decision. In the first step, you decide to either be blue or red-green. And then if you decide that red-green path, you make a second decision to be red or green. And so, again, as we had talked about earlier, really this red-green choice is human. It's, it, it, there's other primates that have it, but it's pretty much human-specific. And so this is why we got into this field. We really wanted to understand human-specific biology. And so what comes with that is it's like, awesome, we're going to study human stuff. But the problem is because, you know, there wasn't a lot of other models to study it. We really went in kind of blindly, no, no pun intended. Um, but we went in and we didn't know really what to look for. And, uh, you know, it was really the work of Sarah Hadniak, the first author in this paper, who realized that this retinoic acid could be a potential signal for this. And we were um, partially inspired by the work of Debbie Stankamp, who did work in model organisms in zebrafish. Um, who have kind of a similar layout, but it's it's kind of unique to zebrafish, and it's got its own specialities, but it really inspired this work a bit. Um, and so Sarah looked into the this retinoic acid, and the principle um, really kind of changed how we thought about it. So the the last paper on on this really came out about 20 years ago, and at the time, what they thought was that it was essentially a coin flip, that a cell would come to this decision and say, okay, if it's heads... I'm, I'm going to flip a coin, um, let's call it a molecular coin, and say, okay, if it's heads, I'm going to take on the red sulfate. If it's tails, I'm going to take on the green. And for about 20 years, that was the main model. But what Sarah went on to show is that that it really seems to have a, a mechanism, and it's it's very influenced by by temporality or timing. So we see in in normal human tissue that you get the green cells first and then the red cells later. And then what we saw or kind of correlated was that the, the enzymes that make retinoic acid are highly expressed early. So you have a lot of retinoic acid early, which is also when you get the green cells, and then low retinoic acid late when you get the red cells. And so we had a simple hypothesis that, okay, let's go into our organoids and say, okay, let's grow them up. What do we get? Well, we get a mix, and most of them are actually red, which is similar to our human eye. In our regular human eye, most of them are red with a, you know, with a, a smaller proportion of green. And so we said, okay, what would happen now? We think that retinoic acid can, if we have high retinoic acid, it's going to make the green cells. So we grew these organoids with high retinoic acid. And indeed, that's what we saw. We were able to make organoids with a majority of green cells, supporting the idea that the retinoic acid is that key signal. Right. And so, um, so this is a, a sort of a, a pathway um, in the development of the, th these cone cells that um, in the, in the, there, there's a lot of presence of this acid in the beginning. And as that, as that degenerates, the expression changes and you get different types of, of cone cells. That's exactly right. What about um, flies and zebrafish? Th these uh, retina 
sort of organoids that you're growing, surely that, that takes a lot of time, it costs a lot of money. Um, why not just use flies or zebrafish like uh, most normal scientists? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people ask this question. Um, so actually, we still have our a good chunk of our lab working on fly research. And what I tell to, especially to young scientists, is to really pick the model organism that would be the best system to address the question you want to work on. You know, so for example, you know, you wouldn't want to study, um, you know, um, the the smallest molecule p potentially in an elephant, right? Because they're they have a very they're they're very hard to to manage. They're hard to breed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so really, what we wanted to do by getting into these organoids is is study human specific biology and that's what we've been doing especially with this new paper you know how are these red cells made the paper we're currently working on um is how a region of the eye called the fovea which is our high acuity center is made and again this is specific to um to humans and some other uh mammals and some birds um but really we don't know much about how it's made um, we can take information, for example, from birds and, and think that that's how it works, but we really need to test it in a human system to see how it works. And this is particularly important because this is the region that breaks down during macular degeneration. So, you know, I, I think one thing that I've, having worked on um, worms and flies previously, um, I've grown to appreciate working with real human tissue that, again, we're more interested in the fundamental mechanisms, but we can see how it could influence, um, you know, uh, health applications moving forward. Well, I wanted to finish off asking uh, you about that. Obviously, you, you know, you said that this is basic sort of research, but um, having an understanding of how uh, something like uh, the the fovea develops uh, is, it, 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 do you see any applications yet for clinical um, use? Are, are these organoids that you're building are they are they useful in clinical applications? For sure. So there's several groups. Um, for example, the Canto Cellar Lab, the GAM Lab, who are taking some of these and working on ways to directly replace the tissue. So in other words, if you have da severely damaged or degraded tissue, that they could transplant that in and hopefully eventually figure out how to make the connections to the other neurons and eventually to the brain. Uh, for myself, I actually collaborate with another um, colleague at Johns Hopkins, Mandeep Singh. We're trying a, a different approach. So what we're doing is we're trying to get these photoreceptors from these organoids and we're trying to rescue um, sick photoreceptors. So they're not dead, they're there in the retina, but they're sick. And so the idea is that we, we transplant them in and the sick cells will actually transfer healthy material to the, sorry, the, the healthy cells will transfer um, healthy material, so proteins, uh, other molecules, to the sick cells to rescue their function. Um, and this is called like cytoplasmic transfer. And so we're really hopeful that, they, you know, between our approaches and the approaches from these other labs, that all of these will help, you know, the many people who suffer from vision uh, problems across the world. Absolutely fascinating speaking with you, Bob uh, Johnston from uh, the Department of Biology at Johns Hopkins. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. It's time now to look back at some of your comments from last week. And we were speaking with Gabby Kapter. She is from NHS Foundation Trust and UCL, and she has invented a vest 
to replace the ECG that gives you much more um, sensors and better sensors that you can just stick the vest on, strap it in, and a child can wear it, an adult can wear it, and it will give you a really good 3D model of the electro um, map of uh, your heart, uh, which is uh, a really significant improvement on the sort of stickers where you had to be shaved and they would stick these um, electrodes onto your body and sometimes they would fall off and uh, it was really, really clever idea. If you didn't hear the piece, it's, it was on last week. Really interesting. Uh, Joey says, Fab Show is ever, Jonathan. Belfast's Heartscape have developed an 80-lead ECG back in the 2000. John Anderson was a world-class innovator in cardiac care. See Frank Pantridge legacy. Hairy chests were a problem. Uh, yes, hairy chests are, are definitely a problem if you want an ECG. And as we learned last week, one of the problems is you have to shave people and then uh, they just have sort of patches <laughs> around their hairy chest where the ECG was, which um, which take a while to grow out. Lauren Dublin says, as someone with a history of cardiac arrhythmia and a father who died as a result of sudden cardiac arrest, this is most welcome news. Well, thanks for that, Lara. It's not in production yet, but it does seem like a big advancement in the technology that we have today. Uh, Cormac and Nathan Rye texted uh, about the piece we did last week about teleportation. Man, that was awesome. Did you hear it? Um, we were talking to uh, Andrew Forbes from South Africa and uh, he managed to transport an image from one place to another without it ever passing in between the two places using quantum entanglement. Uh, this is this idea that you can have two particles that are entangled in two different places and then you can actually affect one and and it will have uh, a, a, an opposite effect on the other particle um, without passing any information between the two of them. It's absolutely mad quantum world um, Marvel um, stuff. Um, Cormac says, Jonathan, no matter how many times you cover quantum mechanics or anything related to the quantum world, it always ends up just sounding like some piece of evil magic or sorcery my granny told me to watch out for when I was a young lad. It is absolutely mind-boggling. If you haven't heard the piece, listen back to it. It is absolutely crazy. The, the idea behind it because it goes against all the Newtonian physics that we you know we live in this world of you know you, you drop an apple and, and and you know you can't walk through things and you know everything sort of makes sense in our physical bodies as we experience the world but what happens at the quantum level as we all know it's just it just does not make sense we were also uh, talking about a story in Newsround about uh, the Anthropocene. So this is um, a period of history where um, it, it considered a new geological era in which um, the humans have made such an impact on Earth uh, that uh, it, it's considered a new epoch. Uh, there are researchers who have been claiming that this is also the case now for the moon, considering how much litter uh, we have left on it. Um, and someone says, why must we feel the need to label this as some new epoch? Honestly, the amount of time human beings have been around is barely a blip in the timeline of the Earth. Let's hold off for another few millennia before we start putting our name on the moon, too. Look, I think the moon is probably a stretch. I think it was probably more a, um, a, a PR piece to sort of highlight this issue. Um, but I think the argument for the Anthropocene on our Earth is probably quite convincing, I think. I think if we... if if we look back at this period geologically in a million years' time, I think we will see something, even though, as you say, we are um, quite insignificant uh, in terms of our timescale. Uh, and Portrick in Dublin uh, liked our story on hedgehogs and lawnmowers. So hedgehogs um, are, are becoming increasingly the victims of AI lawnmowers, where um, lawnmowers are just roaming around randomly like the, um, the ones that uh, are automatic. 
and hedgehogs are getting caught in them, unfortunately. And so there was some testing done on, on how hedgehogs would react to them and how lawnmowers react. And uh, the aim is maybe to get a hedgehog-friendly lawnmower standard. And someone says, we got plastic grass in the back garden a few years ago. No dead or mangled hedgehogs and the kids don't traipse in mud everywhere. Win-win. I mean, uh, yes, poetry, but at the same time, biodiversity and, you know, nature and plastic hellscape. <laughs> That's my own personal th- take. That said, you look outside my window and no, I do not have a nice um, uh, lawn. The lawn is all over the shop. There's mud and dirt everywhere. Um, we, I, I'd use the excuse of biodiversity, but there is a small, there's a medium, there's a large part of that that is just laziness um so look to each their own i'm not going to judge but uh, i try and keep the amount of plastic that i put into the world at, at, at a low level um as possible love to hear your thoughts on it you can email me science at newstalk.com uh, you can also reach us at twitter we're at newstalk science that's it from us on this week's show thanks to marisa sullivan producing simon Keane, Stephen daunt and hugo de silva on sound we'll be back with more in your podcast feed on tuesday Uh, Some small personal news. I will be um, just keeping to myself for the next couple of days uh, uh, off the back of the news of Jurgen Klopp leaving Liverpool. In the the grand scheme of everything that's going on in the world, uh, like I know, of course, people say, you know, get some perspective. But actually, I've just just got really invested in in him as a person. Like I actually, you know, when people talk about, uh, you know, who your role models are, you know, he's definitely one of them. alongside Angela Merkel and um, Mary Robinson and many singers and, and um, artists. But he, yeah, I'm just good at it. I'm just good at it. And I felt the need to say this here in a science podcast for some reason. Listen, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you very shortly. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sundays from midday on News Talk.